Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Helen Jenkins, who is a friend, a comedian and a Japanese translator. We spoke about everything from cultural appropriation to freedom of information to censorship on the internet uh, to a theory that I've been throwing around in my head uh, recently. Helen put me up in Edinburgh when I landed here. I mean, I came in on the train, but when I arrived here, I couldn't get the key to my flat and so she let me stay on her couch and it was really lovely and really kind. I don't, I didn't know her very well before that, so it was very generous of her. And I was not in good shape. I got bitten by quite possibly a tick at the Deer Shed Festival in York. Uh, so my arm was all horrible and I had tonsillitis, which I've never had before. And I went to the doctor, she took me to the doctor and I got prescribed all of the antibiotics, uh, which I don't normally take, A, because they have weird side effects for me, but B, because I spent so much time in hospital during my life uh, with mum and heard too many nurses talking about antibiotic-resistant bugs, so I've always sort of resisted taking antibiotics. Um, and now I, I feel a lot better, my, my throat feels a lot better, my arm isn't twice the size it should be, uh, and uh, my skin feels like it's trying to crawl away, which I didn't know was a side effect you could get. Uh, but then I was talking to my twin brother about it, and apparently he gets the same side effect. So that's somehow nice. Somehow that makes the whole thing less horrendous than it is. I am in Edinburgh. I'm in Edinburgh, and I started last night. I did my first preview last night. Uh, I don't know whether it's the antibiotics or not, but I've been waking up in the night with great ideas about how to fix the show, which is the perfect thing at this point, um, especially if the idea you have, as the idea I have, was like a complicated sort of projection situation, which I may or may not get around to doing. Um, but the show itself was really good last night. I was really happy with it. The audience was lovely and... Uh, I I feel really solid about this show. I will also, this is a secret-ish thing, I will also be doing a few, a few shows here and there, stay on Twitter um, and keep an eye out for them, at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, uh, of Savage. I'll be reviving Savage to film it um, for a special and that will be in Melbourne on the 10th of September at the Malthouse Theatre. There will be announcements on social media and all of this kind of thing. It's, it's quite exciting and big. I'm still not sure if it's the right decision to film Savage, um, but they said it's sort of a, a quite a big opportunity. It's going to have a fair bit of publicity, and I think if there was one show that, you know, gunned to my head... I can only do one show for the rest of my life or I could only have one show define me, it would be that. So that's the decision I've made, but with the full awareness that I'll finish Edinburgh with Mythos and that'll be like trim, lean, punchy, the best version of itself that it can possibly be. And so I want to also run in Savage as much as I can. I uh, don't know if it's the wrong decision. If you have any opinions on that, email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. Uh, I'm, I'm worried because I already have it on the podcast and I feel like filmed versions of things can be a little distancing, so I'm going to be trying to figure out with the producers of it um, how best to overcome those particular um, the potential downfalls for a show like that. I want it to be as good as it can be and and to communicate the thing that I think works in the room with people and I also think that works in the audio recording but I, you know part of that is the 3D binaural microphones which make you feel like you're in the room if you're listening on headphones and anyway you don't need this is my inner monologue at the moment so email me alicerfraser at gmail.com uh, tweet me at alliterative a-l-i-t-e-r-a-t-i-v-e Hit me up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash alicefraser, and you Patreon people have been so lovely and supportive during this extremely wobbly time for me. I mean, not extremely, it's mildly wobbly at best, but it is sort of itchy and weird and full of borderline delirium. So your comments and, and the conversations I've been having with you all have been really lovely. So I just want to say thank you, a particular thank you to my Patreon supporters. Enough of this. Uh, on with the show. Here is Helen Jenkins having tea with Alice. I'll see you next week.
doing this thing, Stranger Than Sci-Fi, on the BBC at the moment, on mm-hmm. BBC Radio 4, which feels like a massive deal. BBC was always the big sort of shining light on the hill, particularly yeah. uh, for being in Australia, where we still yeah. have sort of unresolved colonial issues about things yeah. in England being sort of fancier Fancy, yeah. and yeah. more authoritative. But uh, it was the first time in my whole career where so I tried out with a couple of different co-hosts for chemistry and they called me later on the same afternoon that I auditioned we had a conversation and they said oh it's you we want you for it and Jen Gupta is the co-host and my thought for the very first time in my career wasn't oh I'm so lucky even though it's something that I've wanted for so long and it's such a big idea but I just thought, yeah, you're right. I have 200 and almost 50 episodes of a conversation podcast. Mm-hmm. I can have an interesting conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was just the first time that I didn't feel immense imposter syndrome at being yeah. offered something. Yeah. Which is nice. That's a really lovely feeling to know that this is, you can have this. You can have this. Yeah, and then part of my, the kind of Australian part of me was like, oh, who do you think you are? But I did have that moment of, of you know, because Australia is very kind of anti-arrogance. Yeah, of course. Uh, we have that tall poppy syndrome mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, what are you drinking? What am I drinking? Yes. I'm drinking Marks and Spencer's Brazilian Arabica coffee, ground coffee from a pot. Because it's the morning? Because it's the morning. Because it's the morning and, and I need to have... a full day of work. And I've got a full day of flyering to the unsuspecting public with my very loud voice. <laughs> <laughs> they will hear me all the way down in the caverns underneath the ground, probably, with how exuberant and loud I shall be. Well, I'm drinking ginger tea because I have tonsillitis, um, which is a new experience for me. I don't recommend it, mm. uh, but it hasn't affected my voice. It just makes swallowing mm. feel like razor blades. Oh, what a delightful feeling for you. Yes. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, when you wake yourself up by swallowing in the night and suddenly become aware that you swallow in the night. I'm sure I thought I swallowed in the night, mm. but I don't think I ever experienced swallowing in my dreams. You were never aware of this moment. <laughs> you knew your body could do this. <laughs> Um, what have you been wrestling with of late? Uh, well, I'm going to be moving from Edinburgh, where I live now, uh, down to London in October, which I'm a little bit uh, not, I don't want to say worried, but a little bit trepidatious about it. Why is that? Um, well, when I last lived in London, I didn't have the best experience and also um, just just generally like mental health like I don't want to say issues because I don't think it's necessarily an issue but like I do get anxious and I do have depression sometimes especially in the winter months and it's just just being a bit more concerned about that and just allowing myself to be vulnerable with people because when I last lived in London I wasn't very communicative with my friends about how I was feeling and I would just be very stiff upper lip you can do this, hearing my dad's voice in my head just being like, oh, just get on with it, mate. And then I was just like, oh, let's just spiral down this hole. So I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm battling with that a little bit at the moment. But There's a phrase that uh, Will, Will Anderson was talking about on his podcast mm. uh, that I think is a decent way to think about it is everyone has um, a state of mental health. Yeah. We don't really think about that. It sort of is invisible unless there's a problem. Yeah. But you have people who are physically healthy and you have people yeah. who are physically unhealthy yeah and if somebody you know people say oh they have mental health issues everyone has mental health yeah one way or the other yeah I think one of the things that's sort of missing maybe in the discussion of mental health Mm. is the idea of someone who's mentally super fit or super resilient (laughs) anti-fragile in the best possible way I think that's a bit... I think that's an impossible person. Like, you know how you see people go to the gym all the time and they're, like, extra? Yeah, Yeah, but I feel like they've got some issues as well, probably. Yeah, true. I mean, if if you've got... I guess the sort of aggressively spiritual yoga instructor type. 
yeah. might be the equivalent yeah. who's always saying... You've reached enlightenment. Well, but like, then they haven't. I know. They're performing <laughs> a, a parody of enlightenment. Exactly. But then there's... there's it's like then, spray painting your abs on yeah. in terms of mental health, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the Instagram filter of mental health is the... Uh, well, it's all sit together and, you know, when they give you, like, a special heart-to-heart hug mm-hmm. and tell you that it's good to press your heart into somebody else's heart. And that's not, yeah. that's not wrong. That's no, not wrong, but it's wrong. annoying. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just like, oh, God, don't don't touch me. Just don't touch me. It's like, I, I'm not too... I, I'm a very tactile person, but I don't like it when... And I, oh God, I am that person that I'll just go up to people and give them a hug sometimes. And I, and I, and I don't like it when people do that to me, but I do it to other people. <laughs> Maybe I'm trying to prove something. I don't like it when somebody um, connects with you, either physically or emotionally, in a way that seems less about you being in the room with them mm. than them running a script in their head. Yeah. But how this interaction should go. I remember it making me extremely angry after mum died of people who wanted to have a moment to show that they really got it. Yeah. And it seemed, and at that time I was probably pretty angry because there wasn't enough room in the grief bucket so it spilled over into anger. But I just remember finding it utterly infuriating. Yeah. Because it was about them needing to know that I knew that they got it. It's, um, it's sympathy versus like empathy, isn't it? Like they weren't, they were separating themselves from the situation, but still trying to join themselves in like the most it felt shallow sort of way. Parasitic in yeah. a way, it felt. Yeah. And you have that in all sort of areas of life as well. The kind of person who will always ask about your problems. Yeah. And that's the right thing to do if you're a friend. But there's a way to ask about somebody else's problems that is sort of a yum 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 yum. How can I take this and just use it to boost my own ego and my own influence on this person? Like you're trying to make that person feel better for there's your sake rather than that for that. Is, no, even even if they want to know your sadness, yeah. there's a sense that they're getting some nourishment out of the sadness itself oh, rather vampires. than... And of course that's, you know, everything, you know, if you do anything good it's probably because it makes you in some way feel good even if it makes you feel bad there's some sense of, of satisfaction to it yeah. so is there ever a good deed like truly everything is selfish one way or another yeah. but i feel like there's a spectrum mm. oh yeah of course. And, of course and as with most things uh there's a massive massive spectrum i've been wrestling with spectrums recently mm. spectra spec spectre spectre uh spectre uh i've been because there are many things... I feel like there's a lot of things now. I'm, I was thinking about it in terms of the free speech debate, but mm. I'll start with the spectrum. Mm. There is a direct line between language and violence. Yeah. But they are not the same no. thing. No. And I feel like people erase the gradations between one thing and another and make and that makes everything flat. Yeah. It makes it, it, it reduces your ability to describe what's actually going on. There's so many yeah. words that are flattening out now. Yeah. Like feminism. If somebody says they're a feminist. Yeah, what kind of feminist are you? Are you a uh, pro sex worker yeah. or anti sex worker feminist? Yeah. Are you a pro trans or anti trans feminist? Yeah. Are you a, a pro breastfeeding in public or pro modesty feminist? Are you a. Pro, yeah. Are, are you both? Yeah. A, a pro hijab and a pro free the nipple like oh. you can be but but just saying that you're a feminist doesn't tell me what you believe yeah in the same way somebody telling you they're a christian might tell you absolutely nothing that's like two thousand different denominations of christianity so what do you mean, what does that mean by that and 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 so i feel and then weirdly in a way that i think doesn't happen so much in christianity in feminism each category seems to insist that theirs is the true feminism Mm. their particular set of beliefs under their selection from the pick and mix under the umbrella of feminism Mm. is actually the real one and everyone else who claims to be a feminist but believes differently yeah isn't a real feminist isn't a good feminist or isn't an adequate feminist yeah or isn't a feminist at all and i don't i don't understand i don't know how to fix it 
think I think I'm a lazy feminist. Like, do what you like. Godspeed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, there's a sort of a that's a, a brand of feminism as well, and mm, that you know. Of course, but it's, it's it's hard to have the conversation of like well, like as you say with like feminism, like there's so many different denominations now, like the same way that some whether you like some kind of automobile or something like that. It's the same, it's just like people trying to put themselves into certain brackets of their own beliefs and their own identity rather than actually looking at the bigger picture, it seems. Yeah, people people saying, I like music, yeah. doesn't tell you a lot about no. what they like. No. And my response to that is sort of to be, and I noticed this the other day on Twitter because I had tonsillitis and I was on a lot of antibiotics and I decided to explain things. That's my response is to sort of, explain things and expand things and you might have noticed from this podcast that's a thing that I sort of am drawn to doing the idea that if you explain enough if you converse enough if you communicate enough if they explain enough yeah there will be some understanding yeah it's the best way to have an argument isn't it that's how Aristotle said all arguments should be ethos logos and pathos pathos. Yeah. Yes, ethos, logos, and pathos. And you take all of those boxes, the best way to like argue. Arguably what my trilogy was going to be last year was ethos, oh. this year was going to be logos, but I explain why it isn't mm. in the show, mm. which is called mythos. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I basically realised that if I wrote it down, people would read it as logos, <laughs> uh, which would require some annoying explaining. Mm. But um, yeah, I got into I, I got into two sort of arguments on on Twitter, not arguments, discussions. It wasn't an argument from my perspective. Yeah, and I've been thinking a lot recently. Sorry to be blathering your ideas, my ideas at you. Not at all. But this is the thing I was thinking. Mm. I was thinking. I'm mostly. As close to a free speech fundamentalist you can be without suggesting that they abolish hate speech laws. Mm -hmm. And I've always sort of believed quite strongly in the effectiveness of speech. Yeah, language. The the power of language, which can be misused if someone has too much of it. Oh, yeah, of course. But also the idea of the kind of... um, uh, Mainly anti-censorship and anti-deplatforming. Yeah, of course. And uh, all of that's predicated on this assumption that free speech works, but it only works, you know, this idea of the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. And how the internet has kind of broken down the dream of the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. Because you have now in that marketplace monopolies of power and these algorithms mm. that mean the marketplace isn't actually a free market no it's, it's echo chambers for people with very individualistic agendas now, well, just well, in capitalist claim it's what happens in an actual free market without regulation yeah is that you end up with people who have monopolies of yeah. power and then you have people who are being exploited and abused, people who are having information filtered to them in inadequate doses or in distorted doses, people who are in a free Western democracy whose access to information is the equivalent of living in a fascist propaganda state. Mm. I mean, of course, it isn't. They have the right to go and seek outside their bubble, but effectively, on a day-to-day basis, they're only getting certain... Yeah streams of information well of course like i mean if you just if you look well i mean taking america as like a great example with their own um news companies like fox news for example it doesn't give a balanced view of debate or anything like neither does cnn neither does cnbc is that the other one none of these like these are the three main ones that i know of anyway and they don't give balanced views at all they're just like feeding into the audiences that they already have supplied and then those audiences are going to go onto Facebook, speak to the same-minded people and because they're going to find them through the algorithms, as you say. Then it's the same with Twitter, then it's the same with their internet searches and things like that. And it's a step worse than that with the social media because they're not just available to the you know the streams of information, the silos that you mm. can see mapped out. There's some really interesting maps on the internet about mm. how much crossover there is in mm-hmm. actual fact mm-hmm. communication, that these people are living in two different mm. news landscapes, mm. even the stories that they hear. Mm. 
and so on and so forth. It's not just that people are seeking those out. Yeah. It's that those streams are seeking people out yeah. and drawing them in and cultivating them. And you watch one Jordan Peterson video and all of a sudden you're suggested well, 15 mm. more extreme videos yeah, like, with clickbaity titles yeah. that draw you down an avenue towards yeah. nastier things. I think Jordan yeah. Peterson is in himself on his own outside of that landscape, a relatively harmless, old-fashioned idiot who helps some people get their lives together. Yeah, he's just... But if you put him in that landscape, yeah, he's a reasonable face for a toxic sarlacc pit of hatred. Of course. And so he sort of yeah. appears to the left as a sort of, what, what, like a... A Judas goat or a, yeah. like some sort of... You know what I mean? I don't know exactly what the thing is. He's like a trap. He's a lure. He's a... Come with me, dear child. Let me tell you how to clean your room. Yeah, he's 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 an enabler or something. He's a slippery slope. He's a soft drug. He's yeah, a he's gateway. A, yeah, he's a gateway drug into the alt-right sort of ideas and identities. You go from Jordan Peterson to Ben Shapiro. Then you might make another jump to... Breitbart to Milo Yiannopoulos to all of those are sort of yeah and they they will go under that like yeah like the algorithm will like happily take you down that path especially on YouTube and this is the thing all of those people have some reasonable things to say they wouldn't have any platform if they didn't yeah they say some sane and reasonable things yeah and in a free marketplace of ideas a truly maybe not a free maybe a regulated market a proper marketplace hmm you would be able to approach these ideas, select yeah. the ones that suited you, yeah. balance them against other ideas, yeah. and come out with a, with a different outcome. You know? Ooh, but do you think like people are just starved for like education and want to like feel intelligent? Like Jordan Peterson, bless him, he's not hard to understand. And, but I think because he has that sort of like status and influence and he goes around on all the intellectual podcasts and things like that, like people I feel... I saw a, a burn of Stephen Fry that said he's a dumb person's idea of a smart person. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on that argument. I don't know Stephen Fry and I think he is very smart. I think he's very smart. Uh, smart but, but just I think that's a decent way to put it. Yeah. That, that there is an access to sort of intellectual... But then I don't... Th- I think there should be access to... Of course. Intellect. Of course, of course from you know people who have less education and to but it is it needs and then this was the insight i had i guess this is this is the thing that i really wanted to mention today was that in our culture which i believe in i think western culture overall with all its flaws ends up being yeah. pretty decent for yeah. most people. Arcs swings towards justice, but just in that really mi- weird middle bit at the moment, like where it's evenly balanced and it feels like it might fall backwards. Yeah. But I, I do the thing that I think of as the best forum for truth, and the thing that we as a kind of a society put forward as the best forum for finding out truth, mm. if it's done properly, is mm. a law court. Absolutely. Which is one of the most regulated formats of speech yeah. available to anybody. Yeah. You, you're told when to adduce certain evidence, when to discuss certain topics, how long you're allowed to touch on anything, that you must give things their proper weight. There is an obligation mm. on the judge and on the lawyers and on the jury to, if there is a jury, to weigh things in balance. Mm. And I feel like... There's some sort of conflict between my idea of everyone really kind of being in a room talking with each other, mm. which in reality has ended up being the people with the loudest voices dominate the conversation. Yes. And has disappointed me. And then the idea of the law court, which is so severely regulated and so sort of in some ways restrictive of freedom. Mm. And again, obviously, if done wrongly, Mm. Um, by human beings often comes out with unjust outcomes or sometimes comes out enough for it to be concerning Mm. comes out with unjust outcomes ultimately it's a law system not a justice system isn't it so like that's going to happen unfortunately but like as you say like the use of language in law 
it's ironclad. Like, you, there's no, like, getting around it. Like, if you choose to, like... That's why you have to put forward, like, the... Even the ar- way you ask questions. Yeah, like, the way you can't do an, uh, You can't do a yeah. leading question in a... Objection! Yeah. Leading the witness. It's yeah. like, you can't... Like, the limitations of what you have is just so that you are ultimately trying to filter the truth. Can you imagine if you had, a, for example, some sort of demagogue, Jordan Peterson-y type... With every speech having a kind of a, a judge on the side going, objection, speculation, <laughs> objection, insufficient data, strike it from the record. <laughs> the internet would like lose a lot of information in that way, I think. But like all the information that probably needs to be gone. So it would be interesting. I, would, I wouldn't mind that. Be a bit, oh God, actually no. Well, I still, I still <sighs> sort of truly, truly, truly believe in... Uh, as little censorship as you can get away with without damaging a society. Of course. Because... Words are important symbols, man. Like, we need them. And, like, the person... And it's up to the person who says them and then the person that receives them to put... Well, there are so many ideas that have come forward in history that at the time they were put forward were not just unthinkable, were offensive Mm. and dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, even the idea that the Bible should be allowed to be read in English was considered... Oh, you heretics. You were burned Mm. to death Mm. for saying that it should be. Yeah. Like, that is... And people who burned you to death were very sure that they were on the right side of history. And they, the, the people who thought the Bible should be translated into English were th- sure that they were on the right side of history. And it's only after, you know, a couple of hundred years of wars and burnings that... Yeah, the Crusades. ...we've decided <laughs> that one side was always right. And it's... Hard, and it's, uh, it's, it's, in, it's interesting how, like, the use of language evolves, but how we're also limited as well in our description of things. Like, I think there has to be a larger vocabulary for what is for what constitutes assault and things like that. Of course, like with the milkshakes, for example, like Farage getting pelted with a milkshake, of course it's, it is assault, but like there's levels of like what can, what should be considered a violent attack. I mean, like it's still assault, like throwing a milkshake at a politician, it's still, a, it's still, it's still assault and you should be arrested for it. That's, I fully contend to that, but it's also a form of protest and it feels like there should be a subcategory with a different word. Yeah. It's still a serious, yeah, still serious get, issue, but is still get arrested for it. But like, he's not bleeding. He's got. Well, I think milkshake. part of that in there's there's sort of a couple. I have a couple of thoughts on that. Mm. One is I totally understand the impulse to yeah. humiliate and degrade someone who yeah. is saying hateful things. I mean, it was eggs once, and now it's milkshakes. I think it's, it's a fashion. I mean, I mean, fashions I mean, in I mean, anti-fascist <laughs> protest food. It's like eggs have always been a use in like politics. I think someone's always chucked an egg at someone. Yeah. Rotten tomatoes and eggs and all sorts yeah. of things. I hope someone throws a cabbage at Boris. I think the thing that I, that is a relevant point for the for the people who are anti it, and well, I'm generally against political oh, violence. No, I think uh, is yeah. that it could be anything. Yeah, I've had things uh, thrown on me. Yeah, before. Same. And particularly in like a performance context, mm. there is a moment particularly as a woman, mm. but there is a moment of utter terror. Mm. Is this acid? Is it urine? Is it yeah. poison? Is it a milkshake? Yeah. You don't know. And that moment of fear yeah. and that mo- is something that nobody in a free, non-violent society should be subject to. And again, I would push, mm. I would say, oh, debate them in the marketplace of ideas, but I kind of, I feel like we need to fix that marketplace. No, absolutely. Like, I mean, with this, well, it's violence, ultimately. Like, it's still, it's always going to be an act of violence. Like, but it's always been a thing, I mean, it doesn't excuse it at all, but it, it, but it has always been like a form of protest, to like, like, I mean, um, Ed. People pelting people with rotten fruit and tomatoes and it's, yeah, it's eggs and milk. Been, it's, and always, it's always been done, but like now it does seem to have like a much more 
I don't know why, but it feels like the 90s was less violent and vicious with that sort of like act used to just be like an egg on the shoulder of a politician. Yes. Whereas now it feels... It's quite like it maybe it might be a pink milkshake, but it seems a lot scarier. But I understand it. I think it is because of the kind of an egg is an egg is an egg is an egg. An egg is an egg is an egg is an egg. You know what an egg is. There's quite a fun video of Arnold Schwarzenegger getting egged mm. during his campaign and just dealing with it in yeah. absolute kind of classiness. Yes, Ed Miliband very good with dealing with his egg on the shoulder. He's just like, oh, ha, it's an egg. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, but that's, yeah. Maybe I think also uh, we are living in a far less violent society even than we were in, say, the 70s. Like in the 70s, before I was born, but, you know, you hear parents and everything talking about it. It was regular that people would have a punch-up. Mm. And now that it happens much less often. No. You know, if someone was looking at your girl wrong, you'd have a fight with them. Now that happens if both parties are extremely drunk. Mm. But just in general, mm. I think people are less less used yeah. to physical violence as a way of life. Yes. Which kind of makes an act of physical violence more impactful. Mm. There was some study that I half remember about women suffering domestic abuse. Mm and the kind of psychological scarring of that mm. is reduced if they live in a society where other women are also suffering from the same abuse because it's normalised. Oh, well, I, well, if it's normalised, then, well, I mean, again, not excusing it, but, like, if it's part of your normality and, you, and it's part of your everyday, then you're going to be like, there's nothing wrong with this. Well, this the is violence is still violence and the oppression element of the violence is still oppressive and frightening. Yeah, of course. But the, I think it's just the additional shame element. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know plenty, I know plenty of women who've had this thing and they think, well, why is this happening to me? Well, I should have been stronger. I should have avoided this. I should have known. Yeah. And I think that, just that loop gets yeah. taken out of the equation. I'm... I would like to make it extremely clear that I'm not advocating for domestic <laughs> yeah, violence to become uh, widespread again. Uh, absolute same there. We can cut that. Yeah. <laughs> not leave it in. No. It's, always, it's always good to um, take your foot out of your mouth occasionally. Yeah. But it's just understanding what normality is and how things can be so normalised. Like as you were saying with the marketplace of ideas, free speech... The language that we use to describe assault, to describe like, like we have, um, like saying domestic violence, does that lessen it from like the violence you see every day? Like there seems to be levels that we have, like even with... If you said of a man that he is a domestic violence perpetrator, mm. that sounds different from saying this man hits a woman every day yeah yeah oh no 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 absolutely but it's just like saying if you like to describe this person like commits domestic violence it is he is a violent man and i don't know what i'm saying i'm, I'm just like eating my own words no, no no but this is the thing i think i think the problem or the problem the interesting thing not not a problem the interesting thing is the ways in which words change and are used mm. And are used to either create differences or erase distinctions. Mm. And I f find it as worrying either way. Yeah. When somebody is an erasing a distinction between whether it's forms of violence or different kinds of people, mm. and at the same time it worries me when people create distinctions between people. Of course. This is why I'm wrestling with it. It's not yeah. an e equal answer, but... No, I think... I mean, with, like, all these things, like, um, take cultural appropriation, for example. That's well, something, like, I wrestle... That's something I wrestle with quite often because I speak Japanese. Um, I involve myself with a lot of Japanese culture. I own a kimono that I sometimes like to wear when I'm going to, like, a Japanese festival or an event or something like that. But I couldn't wear it anywhere else. If I was to wear a kimono out in the street... Um, I would be accused of cultural appropriation um, just based on the fact that I was a white person wearing a kimono. Whereas I know all the pieces of the kimono, I know what geta, I know obi, I know 
that it is actually a kimono and not a yukata or the many different types that you can have and it but it wouldn't matter it's the same with like people who choose to wear dreadlocks who choose to, like these are the people who are trying to ingrate themselves into a culture and to understand another part of existence and are not actually the people that we should be arguing against maybe i think Yes, well, this idea, the kind of the idea that underlies a lot of discussions of cultural appropriation is that there's a hierarchy in place and you are a part of an oppressor class sampling freely and taking advantage of something from a subjugated class mm. at the, their cost or at least taking a place, you know, but yeah, taking so advantage of something that they get punished for or whatever yeah. it happens to be. But that... Again, that, that's an erasure of mm. differences and distinctions mm. and different cultures have different hierarchies, different, yeah. different rooms have different hierarchies. Power mm. is not static, power isn't mm. fixed. It pretends to be. Yeah. That's how it preserves itself. Yeah. It's, it's in politics. The, the, the dominance of the American cultural colonialism mm. into the discussions of things like cultural appropriation in other countries mm. is wild to me. Oh, yeah. I, I find that... I find it very hard to deal with. Mm. And I think... And then, for example, you know... I used to go to Myanmar a lot when I was a kid. Yeah, of course. Uh, and in that, I, I, I was there for religious reasons. My family was Burmese Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And I would wear the outfits for ceremonial occasions. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing. Mm-hmm. That if I did that now, mm-hmm. or if I, did, if I dressed up a child of mine or something like that, mm-hmm. people would accuse me of being culturally appropriative. Yeah based on a hierarchy that doesn't exist mm-hmm. because not on a, not on a society wide scale burma was closed when it, when it was burma and when i was there mm-hmm. there was n- other than a sort of a vague racial conflation of southeast asian people as an oppressed class in in where mm. in sydney in australia <laughs> in, in america in what parts of america in you know, the school I yeah. went to was, I think, 60 or 70% Southeast Asian yeah. girls. Where, where is that power dynamic at play? If I, for example, were to wear a Burmese cultural outfit to that school, yeah. what, what, what's at play there? That's interesting. Mm. But it is so much a, so much a, a complicated issue in, in almost every instance that unless you've got these really clear lines like Halloween costumes that are caricature rather than culture, I don't really see why it's a useful discussion to have Mm. for more than 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) I think, like you were saying with the... uh, I think like people, especially like uh, black people, for example, there's a sense of like disenfranchisement, especially when it comes to like music and popular culture and things like that, like rock and roll coming from rhythm and blues in the deep south. And things oh yeah, like I mean, I, I, again, I understand the yeah. American cultural landscape. Yeah, the American cultural landscape. Everyone like, understands the American cultural landscape. Yes, we do. What? That 200 years. Um, but what was your but, okay? Let's kind of take it aside from that yeah. uh, and tell me what what it was like to live in Japan. For and me, what kind of cultural hierarchies were at play there? Well, being a woman in Japan is like being a white woman in Japan is a uh, interesting and bizarre experience because you are you can always try you can try to integrate yourself as part of the culture as much as you want, but you're always going to be the other. And I'm a five foot ten white girl with big blue eyes. So you'd have like lots of teenage girls coming up to you and asking to take your picture and then saying to you, Ah, oh, Negai Hana, like you've got a big nose. And it's like, oh you're so like being like you're so tall, not was a good negai. And you'd feel having all that attention upon you for one is very um 
disconcerting, especially when you're just walking to the shops and just going to get your milk. And just trying to be part of the culture was always quite a difficult experience. I used to have a Japanese boyfriend, for example, and um, his parents didn't like me because um, I was a British girl and um, same height as him as well, so I wasn't like short and petite. And they also didn't like that I would be tainting the bloodline if I were to like marry him and be with him. I was a second class citizen um, in that Literally family. Literally, yeah. in the country as well. You yeah. can't. In the country as well. Like I. Can you naturalize in Japan? Is it possible, or are you always I a different class of citizen? I don't think you can. Actually, I don't think you can become a naturalized Japanese citizen. Like even um, for children that have a parent. Um, a Japanese parent and a parent from a different culture, you can't have a dual nationality passport. Like, you have to choose. By the time you're 21, you have to choose what nationality you want to be. You're either Japanese or you're the other. Like, it's such a nationalist country still, and it has huge problems with racism, especially if you're from um, other Southeast Asian countries, like, especially if you're from, like, Thailand or the Philippines or something like that. Like, you are not going to have... A good time in Japan at all, um, in my opinion. And obviously, like Japan has such a dark history with China and South Korea, like having occupation of South Korea until like what the 1920s, 1940s. And it's just, especially being a woman in Japan, like you're still so thoroughly expected to work to have a job, look after the kids, do the housework, and not have any help from your husband at all. He can just go to work, work the 12 hour day or whatever it is, and then he'll come home, expect dinner, and then that's it, that's your life. Like, and sex isn't expected in your marriage anymore. Like, it's very, the repression in, Japanese society to just get on with work and like to just get through your day, I think is incredibly difficult and it's such a unique form of work efficacy that I don't think is, I think it goes against um, any sort of humanism and human, like, you, you, like how you're working, you're living to work, you're not working to live, as it were, because you have that sort of, like, your work becomes your family, essentially. I've gone completely off topic. No, I'm, I'm interested to hear your, your experience of it, because... I certainly couldn't live there again. Like, after three years of being there, it was just... Every time I would come back home, I would be like, oh... This is who I am as a person because when you're in Japan, well, when I lived in Japan as a as a as a as a woman, I suddenly become a woman again. Um, living in Japan, like I felt that I was repressing so much of my personality just to integrate myself thoroughly into like my friendship groups and um, my work life. I would become far more feminine, like just in how I would speak Japanese, it would become much more higher pitched, I would become cuter and I would like shrink myself down as much as possible so that I wouldn't stand out as who I am as a individual. Like the way that, like just saying, um, how do you do, like, I, like now I just be like, hazumimaste, but when I lived there, like I remember recognizing it about myself um just being like well, and i would just be so it would be so cute <laughs> it's so weird to think uh, like i do have like a quite a um animated like 4d personality but like when i lived there i was so i was i was more of a shadow of who i am that makes sense. And do you think that your kind of um, diminishment of yourself in order mm. to fit in with the people around you mm. was? Um, what do you think that was? Was that respect for the culture? Was it just not wanting to feel different? Was it some combination? Was it another thing that I haven't thought of? What? 
Absolutely a combination. Like, wanting to, like, having to be respectful of the culture, for example, like, um, not talking loud on trains, not having a conversation when you're on a train, really, and just being very respectful of, like, your volume, of, like, how much space you could take up as a person. Like, you never wanted to, like, for me, I never wanted to feel like I was intruding, like, on another, on another person's, um, base or like time and I mean being a British person I feel that quite strongly anyway like I enjoyed like in Japan I enjoyed the word uh, sumimasen because like it means excuse me I'm sorry pardon me covered all manner of sins I feel like the English have just a simple sorry but like it again covers all manner of sins and to diminish like who I am as a person was to like not have people like, he got criticised a lot, like, when I first went over to Japan, because I'm quite, um, not an extroverted person, I'm quite introverted, but, like, when I'm around people, I get very excited, I get very, like, very chipper and probably annoying, but I, I, I'm happy when I'm around people, but, like, in Japan, you don't have that sort of, like, tactile experience of, like, going up to someone and hugging them and um, giving them a kiss on the cheek, even if you know them very, very well you would never experience like a true embrace, as it were. And yeah, I, rem I remember like um, when after a few times I went to hug people, because this was still when I was like a kid, I was only in my twenties at the time. And I was just so excited to be living in Japan, like I'd done my degree, like I'd done my year abroad, which was just fun being at university with all of like my university friends and just having that really fun experience of just like getting drunk in Osaka and then eating really good food, studying. And then I lived there for three years, like worked as an au pair, worked as a PA. And yeah, then, but then after like the first nine months of just becoming a true part of the culture, you understand those sort of like cultural idiosyncrasies and just like language and just, I still bow all the time. Like it's really like <laughs> ingrained into my spirit now to whenever like, um, I thank someone, I like bow and I like clap a lot as well now at things like just to be like because that was how you would express like joy at something rather than hug you would just like clap and be like that's wonderful, huzzah, yay polite applause <laughs> It's really interesting because I'm here looking at the audio wave of our conversation and the longer you've been talking about Japan, the smaller the audio wave when you're, you've become much quieter. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a really yeah. interesting phenomenon. Repressing myself. But I mean, it's useful um, for you, you still work as a translator. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I still love Japan. Like, for all of my, like, complaining about, like, when I lived there and, like, the light depression that you got, like, because you... Wanted, like you wanted to feel smaller. Like I dieted a lot when I was in Japan. Like I was very, I was much. Wanted skinny. to feel small. Wanted to feel small, and I wanted to feel feminine as well. Like being small in Japan is a mark of like your femininity as well. Like I wanted to be girly when I lived in Japan. I wanted to be very feminine, and I enjoyed wearing makeup. I enjoy being um, having that sort of like softness. It's it's great. It's lovely, but like in Japan, it felt more. You wanted to be cute you wanted to be the anime character you wanted to be like that tall leggy but very small human being and it was so it's so weird to look back and like realize that i wanted that whereas now it's just like oh bread is great <laughs> <laughs> well where can people find you online helen jenkins people can find me online on twitter at uh, helen l jenkins and they can also uh, don't add me on Facebook yet. I haven't got a page yet on Facebook, but like, yeah. Just, just find me on Twitter. We thank can have you fun so chat. much for having tea with me. No, thank you for having tea with me. This has been so much fun.
do you know, or do you not? This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle, day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle, day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifles all, lousy rifles day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle, day.